1: clicking on play, and seeing what this is all about. I just want to mention that uh, I am nothing more than a humble truth seeker. Not a very smart one at that, so I'll admit, I don't have a great grasp on the world in general, but I have a pretty clear sense of where my moral compass points, and it's something that I have spent a lot of time working to to, uh, keep calibrated over the years, in spite of a lot of uh, outright deception and manipulation on the part of legacy media, I do my very best to see things as they are, to share that information, and hope that others will make up their own minds about what it all means. I guess that's a long way of saying I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to offer a slightly different perspective that uh, may or may not make sense. Whether it does or not, that's up to you. And what you do with that information, that's up to you as well. I do have some wonderful sponsors who make this program possible. It would mean a lot to me if you were to do business with them. They include GaragedoorProservices.com, LifesavingFood.com, College.org, and HSLAMMO.com. So yeah, the, the big dominant news right now, of course, is the FBI raid on Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago, Florida home and it's been the catalyst to a lot of different reactions. I mean, there are some people who are just, "Oh, well, of course, you know, this is finally finally they're going to get this guy." And uh, there are others who are outraged and going, "Look, this is banana republic stuff. This may be the point of no return that uh, that has been crossed here." And then there are others who just look at it as, "Well, for instance, uh, I'll look at uh, the leadership in the, in the Republican ranks. It's not so much their reaction, it's their lack of reaction. What? I don't see anything. No, I'm not looking. what? Why do you want me to look over there? <laughs> They're just doing anything to avoid looking at it and, uh, and commenting on it. And I mean, there's a lot of different ways that this can go. But as of all the different reactions that I have seen and, and read, I think I like Jordan Schachtel's take on this. And this may seem a little bit uh, fatalistic, but he's got a good point here. At least we don't have to pretend anymore that our government is somehow still, you know, part of the rule of law and it obeys the rules, just the same as we're expected to obey the rules. I think it's pretty safe to say we have seen the Department of Justice become more and more politicized, especially in the last couple of years. The FBI is the tip of their spear, and now the FBI is being used in a weaponized fashion against a former president... Who, I'll grant you, may be unpopular to some, but uh, nonetheless, you know, they're keeping things very, very secret. Uh, Why, for instance, what did I see? Uh, The FBI, when they did the raid, apparently asked for cameras to be turned off at Mar-a-Lago. They arrived wearing backpacks. They told lawyers that you can't be present for the search. That's counter to normal process, at least from... Uh, what a, a couple of different lawyers have, have commented on here, they sealed the probable cause that resulted in the warrant. Isn't that interesting? We can't tell you why we came. And, of course, they didn't leave a copy of the warrant with Trump's attorneys. So, I don't know. I, you know, my, my junior sleuthing mind kind of goes to work here, and I'm okay, well, maybe he had some information. You know, bio labs in Ukraine. I don't know. Maybe maybe there was something that they suspected. Trump has this information, and he's going to bring it out at a later date. Maybe, you know, he had a list of uh, Epstein's clients for his Lolita Express. Now, look, that's, that's speculation on my part. But anyway, I'm going to go back here to Jordan Schachtel's commentary. No more pretending. With the Mar-a-Lago raid, a dishonorable regime exposes its true colors. Jordan Schachtel says... Sometimes it takes a monumental event or series of events to wake a collective of sleeping giants. Without these consequential events, some may live their entire lives perpetually propagandized by ruling class narratives. When the enemies of human freedom are operating in the shadows, we the people have a hard time finding the will to organize a robust defense of our rights. And he says in recent history, we had the example of COVID mania. Now, Jordan Schachtel says, as many dossier readers were aware, he was one of the earliest opponents of the coronavirus insanity of early 2020. He says, I was documenting the fastest roll up of power in human history and no one seemed to care. But eventually the government theatrics became a tired act. Those brutal mandates sparked a new fire in millions, if not billions of people who witnessed the worldwide human atrocities being committed by their local safety regime and chose to bravely break free from the Matrix. A significant chunk of humanity now has their guard up, keeping a watchful eye on the anti-human goals of the global totalitarians. But speaking of the Mar-a-Lago raid, he says, well, with the whole country watching, the American federal security state put the finishing touches on its transformation into a political weapon that protects the interests of the ruling class while attacking its enemies with the weight of the government gun. He says, with the unjustified, entirely baseless FBI raid of the private estate of Donald Trump, the former duly elected president of the United States, Americans are once more being forced to question the legitimacy of our federal institutions. Now, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to throw this, this caution in here just because I, this is advice I try to follow for myself. Question everything. And I trust Jordan Schachtel. I think that he is one of the better investigative journalists out there. But I still would say question everything, take it with a grain of salt, weigh it out, and see what you think. Now, he points out, as many others have pointed out, the judge who reportedly signed that warrant for the FBI to go in and raid Mar-a-Lago is linked to Jeffrey Epstein, actually represented a couple of uh, Epstein's employees. Kind of makes you wonder. Apparently he was an Obama donor and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this judge was appointed by Trump or what, but isn't it interesting? This is the kind of stuff that makes me wonder if, well, maybe, maybe there's some information on, uh, you know, the, the official list of people who spent a lot of time there on Epstein's Island. I don't know. That's speculation on my part. But bottom line is we're done pretending that the government actually serves our interest at the federal level. It doesn't. And Jordan Shackle says, look, no more pretenses, no more pretending. As the great Jocko Willink would say upon encountering antagonistic circumstances, good. Yes, good. Hundreds of millions of Americans just witnessed the FBI delegitimize itself as a federal law enforcement institution. And he says, the hubris-fueled, overconfident idiocracy that is the Biden administration and its brown-shirt enforcers have revealed their true colors for the world to see. And he says, I, for one, am grateful they decided to stop pretending. Now, see, there's a part of me that, that looks at all of this and thinks, well, you know, but it's, it's theater, right? I mean, everything that's done in politics today seems to have some flavor of the dramatic, you know, the, the, the politicians who haunt the halls of Congress, they do have a flair for the dramatic. And so they'll, you know, take a knee and look, oh, we're going to march oh so solemnly with these articles of impeachment. And oh, look, it's just it's pageantry and it's performance. The, the January 6th committee hearings, which we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, again, performance. But at the same time, they've always had to pretend, but really, we're doing all this for you. We are, we are here to serve you in this temple of democracy and whatnot. I don't think we have to buy into that anymore. I think it's becoming very clear that uh, the power exists for their purposes. And if it happens to coincide with ours, well, you know, they might throw us a few crumbs here and there. But I, for one, feel a little bit of relief because it's finally coming out in the open. And this means I don't have to pretend anymore that uh, yes, <laughs> wink, wink, you're doing this just you know for my good. See, I don't want I don't want to sound like a troublemaker, but I guess this this would make me one. If government, and i by this I mean the federal government, if it can't be trusted to uphold its part of the contract that is the U.S. Constitution, in other words, to follow the strict limits on its power. As as outlined within the Constitution, if it can't do so, then I think it's in breach of contract. And I'm under no obligation to give my consent to such an organization. Oh, Brian, but they'll come and they'll force you. They'll make you do this. Let them try. I understand they do have superior force. They have superior numbers, unlimited time, unlimited resources. I, on the other hand, simply have the desire to be free. But uh, to quote uh, Henry David Thoreau, let's put this to the test. Let's see who's stronger. Let's see who's more committed. Because I think my love of freedom is strong enough that, uh, you know, you you can bring hell against it. And that love of freedom is going to stay. And I've seen a lot of better people than myself who've sacrificed a lot more than I have to this point. But I guess it's something all of us probably should be thinking about. You know, now that the mask is off, now that we can see what we're dealing with, I think decision time
0: is approaching. How will you choose? This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, thanks for being part
1: of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And a special shout-out to to Garage Door Pros. You can actually go to garagedoorproservices.com. It would mean a lot to me if uh, any of my listeners in the St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona areas were to do business with Garage Door Pros. A local company. They install, they service, they repair garage doors. These are doors, by the way, made in America. And they really know how to take care of their customers. You can call them at 435-525-2773. Or just click on the link I provide in my show notes. That's garagedoorproservices.com. So, you ever heard people say, well, why didn't somebody warn us? Why didn't somebody say something if they saw that something was wrong? Now, for people who've been awake for a little while, that's like, oh my gosh, I have the urge to smack somebody when I hear them say, why didn't somebody say something? And for people whose eyes have just very recently opened, this is a very real shock that they're experiencing. Whoa, things are not the way that I was told that they would be. So I think we do need to be kind with those people and welcome them, come on, you know, keep uh, keep moving forward, keep moving out of that swamp of misinformation this way to higher ground. Of course, we're following the path of people who came before us who likewise had this realization. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Paul Rosenberg sent out, uh, this is kind of a uh, an updated essay of his from a few years ago about Thomas Jefferson's warning. So for those who say, well, nobody ever said anything, you know, nobody warned us that this was going to happen. Au contraire. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was warning about this way back in his day. Remember, this is the guy who, with whom we credit the writing of the Declaration of Independence. And, and, Paul Rosenberg says people remember Jefferson mainly for the Declaration of Independence, which he wrote in 1776. Some may remember that he served as president from 1801 to 1809. But aside from that, few know much more about his life and work. In fact, he lived until 1826, when he died on the 4th of July, 50 years to the day after the ratification of his declaration. And during those 50 years, Jefferson's intellectual life bloomed. He was an inventor, a horticulturist, and especially a philosopher. And what's also lost to history is that Jefferson was convinced he and the other founders of American self-government were losing the fight for freedom and badly. Mm -hmm. You actually have to do some reading of his works to, to understand this. Now, Paul Rosenberg says in his last years, after a lifetime of learning and experience, Jefferson had one thing preeminently on his mind, and that is the principle of decentralization. Now, Jefferson didn't use the words centralization or decentralization, of course. Rather, he used the common words of his time, consolidation and distribution, Obviously, they meant the same things. In fact, here's a direct statement on the subject from his autobiography, written in 1821. It is not by the consolidation or concentration of powers, but by their distribution, that good government is effected. Now, that statement put Jefferson at odds with political leaders as he writes in a letter to Judge William Johnston in 1823. I have been blamed for saying that a prevalence of the doctrines of consolidation would one day call for reformation or revolution now the following is a passage from a letter to Judge Johnson written in 1822 quote finding that monarchy is a desperate wish in this country they the successors to the Federalist Party rally to the point which they think next best a consolidated government their aim is now therefore to break down the rights reserved by the Constitution to the states as a bulwark against that consolidation the fear of which produced the whole of the opposition to the Constitution and at its birth." End quote. So notice the primary points here. Political parties were pursuing centralization as was in their interest and the parties were trying to steal the power of the individual states and centralize it in one city. Furthermore that they were degrading the constitution to do so. Now, in a letter to William T. Barry in 1822, Johnson refers, or Jefferson rather, refers to the Marbury v. Madison decision of 1803, a decision that American schoolchildren are taught to revere. You know, Jefferson considered it a, dis- a disaster. He writes, quote, "...the foundations are already deeply laid by the Supreme Court's decisions for the annihilation of constitutional state rights and the removal of every check, every counterpoise to the engulfing power of which themselves..." Are to make a sovereign part. If ever this vast country is brought under a single government, it will be one of the most extensive, corruption, indifferent, and incapable of a wholesome care over so widespread a surface. End quote. So the Marbury versus Madison decision was, first of all, astonishing because it maintained that the guy who wrote the Constitution, James Madison, didn't understand it properly. Paul Rosenberg says, more importantly, however, it granted the right to interpret the Constitution to the Supreme Court, taking that right away from the states. And this decision massively consolidated power in Washington, D.C. And it's also central to this point that both Jefferson and Madison, authors of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution respectively, had felt compelled to write resolutions in 1798, that being the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, to preserve the constitutional position of the states which was being overridden by the federalists during the presidency of John Adams. So here's one final passage from Jefferson. This is a letter to uh, from a letter to William B. Giles in 1825, half a year before his death. Jefferson said, "I see with the deepest affliction the rapid strides with which the federal branch of our government is advancing towards the usurpation of all the rights reserved to the states and the consolidation in itself of all powers foreign and domestic." And that too by constructions which, if legitimate, leave no limits to their power. End quote. The point here is the man was right. Paul Rosenberg says Jefferson wasn't right on every detail, of course, and the path to consolidation had some detours. But overall, he was quite correct. Lincoln's Civil War enslaved the states to the national the states to the national government. Nothing in the Constitution forbids secession. And the events of 1913, the income tax, stripping states of their power to appoint senators and a central bank, brought the entire nation under the control of a single city, Washington, D.C. And so the United States became something like an empire, even though thankfully some decentralization remains. But his point is the nation was not to be structured this way, and Jefferson saw it coming and warned us and paul rosenberg says time has proved this man this philosopher to have been quite right so there's also a bit of a you know incentive on the part of those who want to understand well what exactly were the founders thinking why did they structure it this way sometimes it's best to go back and read their own words read the letters read the you know essays that they wrote explaining why they felt the way they did. In fact, read the historical sources that they availed themselves of. Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws, John Locke's Treatises on Civil Government. I mean, come on, there's, there's a lot from which you can draw. But you'll never really appreciate freedom until you understand, you know, how did the people who laid the foundation for it, how did they see it? How did they understand it? And no, they weren't in lockstep they had enough flexibility in their thinking and in their systems to accommodate differing points of view. And that's really, isn't this what it comes down to? I know we get caught up on labels very easily. You know, it's Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, progressives, whatever. But really what it comes down to, and you're seeing this more and more, is some people want to use force and coercion to get others to do what they want them to do. Others choose either voluntary means or persuasion. But it's the people who want to control others versus those who do not want to control others and do not want to be controlled. That's pretty much what politics has become in our time. So I don't know where you land on that spectrum. We're all somewhere on there. After much thought, after much study, after a lot of deliberation, I'm much more inclined to say, you know what, to the extent possible, I will govern myself. And I will reduce my governmental footprint in every way that I possibly can so as to have as little government in my life as possible. Some people think that's radical. To me, that's just common sense.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A shout-out here to
1: HSLAmmo.com. This is high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. Lovingly made right in beautiful, sunny St. George, Utah. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at the TheBrianHydeShow.com. Do a little shopping. And just keep in mind, ammo is always a great, a great store of value. It's something that other people will need. it could be barterable, it's fun to take out and gain skill at arms. so seems like a pretty solid investment for those who are watching their uh, their uh, paycheck you know shrinking by 25% each year now with inflation. maybe this is something to think about as a store of value. If you're not into a gold and silver, perhaps brass lead and copper are a good way to go. HSLammo.com. Someone uh, recently likened the legacy media to um, uh, basically a cadre of missionaries, teaching the woke gospel to us savages out here in flyover country, and you know, insisting that you have to believe this way if you want to be considered saved, or at least you know, a savable kind of person. In the spirit of that uh, that missionary zeal, I like to think of myself as a disciple of liberty. By the way, that phrase is something that my friend Tim Alders coined. I think it's a wonderful way to describe how we go out and teach the gospel of liberty to the world. And I've got a a checklist here from Jeffrey Tucker. This is actually from a few years ago, but it's a marvelous list of the do's and don'ts of talking liberty. Jeffrey Tucker says the future of freedom and liberty depends on our ability to convey the immeasurable benefit of freedom. Now, he starts out with something pretty obvious here, and that is nearly everyone knows there's something wrong with the world as it is. The liberty-minded person believes that he or she knows a major part of what's wrong. There's not enough flexibility and adaptability in the structures of government that presume to manage the social order. State systems have made life rigid and regimented, replete with regulations, taxes, mandates, prohibitions with the cost that too many people are excluded, demoralized, and impoverished. For moral and practical reasons, he says, that situation needs to end. In other words, freedom is the answer. Jeffrey Tucker says, we recall the moment when we discovered this, the light flicked on, the shades came off, and the world looked different from before. Our lives changed. And he asks, how can we help others arrive at this point? He says, the short summary of what we believe, the astonishing rise of government power over the course of the last 100 years, has truncated freedoms, human rights, and prosperity along with all the fruits of the human spirit. So what he's saying here is government is the main enemy, but government hides under the cover of social contract, social justice, democracy, religion, security, and a host of other changing veils. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, all of this is clear to those steeped in the tradition of liberty-minded thought as it has gradually emerged over the centuries. But it's obviously not clear to the vast majority of the human family who continue to live under the illusion that by giving government more power will magically cure society's ills by infusing us with a greater reality of fairness, justice, morality, or whatever they claim. So how best to correct this error? How best to share this knowledge? How best to uh, bring others along to the same understanding? Well, he says, here are 10 rules, five don'ts and five do's. And he says, I know every libertarian uh, reader of this article is immediately saying, don't tell me what to do. But he does have some good advice here. First and foremost, he says, don't be belligerent. Righteous anger at the state of the world is a feature of the libertarian mind. And it was probably the reason for the initial interest in the ideology. When a person makes the link between war, mass killing, lies, and government power, the result is overwhelming. It seems unimaginable that others don't see this. One burns with a passion for justice. One feels an intense desire to do something to fix the problem. Another example might be economics-related. When a person discovers that the Fed is the reason for inflation, the business cycle, and the skyrocketing debt, the effect is shock and anger and the desire to make history right. I says that's all completely understandable, but the problem is to remember that others don't share in this anger because they haven't been made aware of the cause and effect here. They don't share your understanding, so all the dogmatism, belligerence, expressions of anger, and raised voices are not going to convince anyone of the of the case for liberty. Instead, quite the opposite, they inspire others to fear your your temper and your tone. This is really solid advice. A raised tone of voice and increased volume and a more insistent edge are not the same as a convincing argument. Unless you're just trying to get other people to back down in fear, but that's not the goal of persuasion. The goal is to win hearts and minds. He says the better approach is to speak with reason and the intention of actually bringing a person along through making sense. Secondly, don't presume a hatred of liberty. He says many libertarians start conversations online or offline with the presumption that whoever they're talking to is against liberty. But that's usually not the case. The person may not actually be against human liberty, but just unable to see the relationship between certain principles and certain policies. So the job of the liberty-minded rhetorician is to illustrate the connection and to show how the imposition on liberty leads to bad results. For example, in the case of public school uh People who think kids ought to be forced into school till they're 16 or 18 don't imagine that juvenile detention is a good solution or that kids ought to be prohibited from having a viable work experience or that parents can't be good teachers at home. But that's the implication of the policies they support. More state power means the use of more confiscatory power, more fines, more jails, more violence. So in the end, violence is the only tool the state has So every push for intervention amounts to a call for a more violent society. That's a good point. So don't presume a hatred of liberty. Just assume that maybe you see something they don't see yet. Number three, he says, don't presume different goals. It's easy to presume that people have completely different social goals than those of liberty advocates. But That's not usually the case. In fact, Jeffrey Tucker says more often than not, there are exceptions. The people who speak this way don't have different goals. There are some people who actually do favor poverty and human suffering, but that's not very common. Most people share the goal of prosperity, peace, clean environment, and widespread wealth, whatever phrases or words they happen to be using. So don't get hung up on word choices. Number four, he says, don't presume ignorance. That's a pretty good one, too. Non-intellectuals, he says, in my experience, are more open to the ideas of liberty. They just need an appeal to daily experience. How many people know that laundry has been totally destroyed by state regulation, that our clothes are dirtier thanks to government intervention? See, he's given concrete examples. Number five, don't regard anyone as an enemy. I'll let you uh, read more. About this, but this is one of the key points. He says, remember, the enemy is the state, not your fellow human beings. And I don't advise enemy-driven thinking, but if you if you can't see current events for what they are right now and how politicians have weaponized the state against anyone who favors freedom, yeah, this is this is where you need to realize the the real enemy is the state. It's not necessarily the people over there on the other side of the political aisle. It's not necessarily even the the activists out there chanting in the streets. It's the state. And it's trying to use uh, its chicanery to to bring everybody under its control. So what are the do's? Okay, we'll hit these pretty quickly. Number six, do inspire. Absolutely. Inspiring people over uh, requiring that's, uh, that is the best way to go. Persuasion over coercion. He says, do look for the love of liberty. That's number seven. That's something of an art. But if you find someone who speaks the language of liberty, you probably have something, you know, in common there. Bring up that uh, simpatico feeling and, hey, you know, sounds like you, uh, you understand this the way that I understand this. Do have confidence in your beliefs. This is number eight. Do speak the language of your interlocutor. In other words, whoever you're talking to, speak their language. And he says, do suggest great literature. In fact, one of the best things you can do if you really want to promote kind of a, an attitude or culture of liberty, find friends who are willing to read Hard books, classics, novels, you know, um, other types of books. But find something that's, that's very classic. Everybody read it and then get together and have a discussion. This is called a colloquia. And I know it sounds like, oh, how, how very artsy and fartsy. Yes, we'll bring some wine and cheese and we'll call ourselves a book club. Well, whatever you want. All I'm saying is there is something magical that happens when people come together and discuss things that they have been studying. And the amazing thing about it is, you know, you'll you'll pick up insights that other people won't because you have different life experiences and you have a, you know, unique vantage point from which you're seeing the world. But the same thing applies with others. They will have insights that will blow you away and help you better understand reading the very same material. Plus, it's a fun way to hang out with friends and it doesn't really cost that much money. Just a recommendation. Read hard books, get together, and discuss them with friends. It'll actually build your mind, and I'm not joking.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: And a shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. By the way, I forgot to wish him a happy birthday, but happy birthday to Kendall Whiting. He's the owner of lifesavingfood.com. His birthday was yesterday, so I'm I'm a little bit behind the eight ball here, but if you're looking for peace of mind, lifesavingfood.com is a great place to start. So I'm tired of hearing about January 6th. I've been tired of it for a long time, and yet I bring it up and I feel pretty justified in bringing it up just because I believe that uh, as tired as I am about uh, January 6th, we need to keep calling out the lies and the damned lies of the January 6th committee. I've got an article here from Paul Sperry. I think this was written for the Epic Times. And he just reminds us that uh, these folks the January 6th committee and their enablers within the media and their supporters at large are painting a target on our backs as they try to consolidate power. That's kind of a spooky feeling, but uh, look, the mask is coming off. It should be very, very clear by now that, uh, that the entire weight of the federal government is being weaponized against anybody who is not, vocally and enthusiastically in in uh, step with them that's a scary thought paul sperry says the select committee to investigate january 6th has adjourned for a well-deserved summer break misleading the public is exhausting work and this is this is where i recommend this article if nothing else just to to arm yourself with the understanding and the certainty that So much of what uh, took place in these committee hearings was just about constructing a narrative. And I don't know if the uh, FBI raid on Trump's estate down in Florida is the next, uh, next level of where they're willing to take this, but beware for all the talk that we're having about an insurrection. Most likely, the insurrection is playing out in that committee itself. Paul Sperry says a careful review of the official transcripts of its eight long hearings shows the committee repeatedly made connections that weren't there, took events and quotes out of context, exaggerated the violence of the Capitol rioters, and omitted key exculpatory evidence, otherwise absolving former President Donald Trump, of guilt. And while in some cases it lied by omission, in others it lied outright. And it also made a number of unsubstantiated charges based on the secondhand accounts, hearsay testimony of a young witness with serious credibility problems. Now, these weren't off the cuff remarks. Panelists didn't misspeak. Their, ta- their statements were tightly scripted and loaded into teleprompters, which they read verbatim. In other words, the committee deliberately chummed out disinformation to millions of viewers of not just cable TV, but also the big three TV networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, which agreed to preempt regular daytime and even primetime programming to air the Democrat-run hearings. And because the Democrats refused to allow dissenting voices on the panel or any cross-examination of witnesses, Viewers had no reference points to understand how they, along with the two Trump-hating Republicans they allowed on the committee, shaded the truth. Sperry says this charade of an honest investigation appears to have had the desired effect. Polls show the January 6th hearings hurt Trump, who plans to run again with independence. independents. Unaffiliated voters have grown more likely to blame Trump for the Capitol riot and to show support for Democrats in the midterms. That's according to a new Morning Consult Politico survey. With the November elections fast approaching, Paul Sperry says Democrats plan to hold another round of hearings next month, hoping voters pay rather even closer attention. With that in mind, it's important to examine the false claims and distortions they no doubt will repeat. And they are legion. So here he fact checks some of the things that they have said in the hopes that the viewing public and the electorate will not be so easily manipulated. So, for instance, one of the claims was when committee chair Benny Thompson uh, excoriated Trump for not calling off the Capitol rioters earlier, he claimed they were savagely beating and killing law enforcement officers. That's according to the transcript of his remarks from the primetime July 21st hearing carried live by the networks. You ready for the fact? No police officer was killed during the riot. Claimed during the same hearing, committee member Elaine Luria faulted Trump for his glaring silence about the tragic death of Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick, who succumbed to his injuries suffered during the riot. Here's the fact. The D.C. medical examiner ruled Sicknick died of natural causes, not injuries, well after the riot. Luria seemed to perpetuate false rumors started by the New York Times that Sicknick was struck with a fire extinguisher, a fable debunked by both the coroner as well as the Sicknick family. There was also the claim that uh, Thompson asserted that Trump summoned a mob that was heavily armed and angry. Fact, not a single gun was recovered in the riot. For that matter, the only gun used during the four-hour melee was fired by a Capitol police officer who killed an unarmed rioter, Ashley Babbitt whose name was never mentioned in any of the hearings. Despite airing endless footage of rioters breaching the Capitol and fighting police, the committee omitted footage of of U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd shooting Babbitt from behind a doorway without warning, which was the most violent incident that occurred that day. Here's another claim. The committee put a a former far-right extremist on the stand as a witness to testify that rioters built a gallows to allegedly hang then-president, vice-president rather, Mike Pence. Fact, the witness, Jason Van Tatenhove, wasn't at the Capitol that day. He had no insider knowledge about the purpose of the flimsy wooden structure erected across from the Capitol. In any case, it was a mock gallows, not even a functional one. Even the New York Times recently acknowledged it was too small to be used. I mean, maybe this stuff doesn't matter to you, but can you see where this kind of deception gets people all charged up without proper context? Here's another claim. Committee Vice Chair Representative Liz Cheney proclaimed in the hearing curtain raiser, also held in primetime and broadcast live by all three networks, that the panel had evidence Trump said Pence deserves to be hanged, a a chilling claim, if true. Aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, she asserted, the president responded with this sentiment. Maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. Okay, you ready for the facts? Her evidence turned out to be a secondhand retelling by witness Cassidy Hutchinson, a White House assistant fresh out of college who overheard a paraphrasing of what Trump may have thought about the chance not a direct Trump quote, as Cheney implied. Hutchinson later testified Trump said something to the effect of Pence deserves it. Now, there's much more to this. There's actually quite a, quite a list. But I'm going to bring it back in here for a moment. Despite taking more than 1,000 depositions and subpoenaing more than 140,000 documents, the January 6th committee never found a smoking gun proving Trump was involved in a top-down organization of the riot. There was no coordination or conspiracy which tracks with what Biden Justice Department has found. Of the 874 criminal cases prosecutors have brought against Trump supporters in the January 6th riot, none of them names Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator. Look, I'm sick of that passion play as well. It, uh, to me, it's just, it's D.C. melodrama, and it's there to get us stirred up and make us fearful and keep us divided. And it's doing a pretty good job. I have to admit, all things considered, it's, uh, it's keeping us very divided. Now the question is, where do we go from here? The FBI raids Trump's uh, private estate? Okay, that's definitely an escalation. What, are the, what do you suppose is happening there? And then there was a congressman yesterday who I think suggested that perhaps it's time to impeach Garrick, uh, or, uh, the attorney general. Sorry, I'm forgetting his last name, but uh, you know who I'm talking about. And then the FBI came and took this congressman's phone, his cell phone. They confiscated it from him. As, uh, as a friend put it, it's getting Spicy. I don't know where it all ends. I don't know where this is leading, but um, it definitely seems like we are are seeing some power shifting and some power grabbing taking place within Washington, D.C. and within the establishment. It does send just a little chill up my spine just because it, it seems that uh, the people that we're dealing with are very attached to their power. Merrick Garland, that's the name I was trying to remember. Anyway, uh, the people who are so attached to power I think they would go to terribly desperate ends to maintain it and I think we're in the process of discovering you know how far they're willing to take that will they take us over the cliff with them I don't know but we seem to be building to something I'd say that's probably as good a reason for uh, the rest of us you know as, as any reason for the rest of us to let's get right with our creator Let's be as self-sufficient as we can and be a good influence.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.